Hello, and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast, a conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. Episode number nine of the Real Tech, Real Life podcast. As always, I'm joined by Lori Asbury, Miriam Naruzzi, and Andrea Giametti. It's been about two years. We've been on a little bit of a break, but we are very excited to be back and doing podcast again. This is podcast number nine, which is the final episode in our life cycles of a services organization series. Uh, the topic is closing out projects, which is fitting because we're closing out uh, the, this series. Going forward, we will be releasing podcasts about every three or four weeks and on, on a variety of different topics, um, everything from what's going on at, at, in our work lives to personal lives, and then also uh, doing a series of interviews. We've already started a few of those and are having a great time doing it. So enjoy episode number nine. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, or whatever your, your preferred podcast provider is. And also check out our website at www.realtechreallife.com for uh, a list of upcoming episodes. Today, we're going to be talking about closing projects. We've wa- worked our way all the way through the project lifecycle um, from beginning to end, from sales to delivery. And so today we'll talk about how we close a project in a way that uh, uh, we're able to learn from it and, and uh, also kind of uh, locks things down with the customer as well. So uh, I will start with Miriam. So do you have any recommendations for, as you get towards that last phase of the, of the process of, of a project, how do you get a customer ready to, to close and lock down a project? Even though the closure only happens towards the tail end, preparing the customer for it really should start way ahead of time. There's a lot of activities. I think as most typical projects go, a lot of the activities when there are delays gets pushed towards the tail end. So tail end of the project, I would say the last third is generally the busiest. Um, so to the extent that you can, I would recommend for folks to start the preparation of the customer way ahead of time. Um, there are many things at play. I think knowledge transition is a big one. I think that's a good conversation starter uh, as opposed to telling the customer, hey, you know, what's your definition of me being done? The conversation should be, what does it take for your team to be prepared to take over the work? So I would say knowledge transition, discussing that the customer's um, expectation on how they want to manage the project or the system once the SI is gone. I think it's a good way to bring up the topic. Um, so I think that's one big area. The other big area is this notion of acceptance. Uh, as you go through a system, uh, user acceptance test is big. And as I have uh, worked with many customers, I realized that UAT, user acceptance test, means different things to different people. So starting that conversation early to kind of understand in their world, what's the acceptance process? Um, how is that related to testing? Because some customers expect UAT to be a form of testing, whereas what I've seen the SIs do is that user acceptance testing is generally the formality 
for a handoff where it's not really testing. It's just more about the customer going through some key flows and agreeing that, yes, this is what, uh, this is meeting the objectives of the system as a whole. So if I, I mean, I think the two biggest areas, again, I would just uh, emphasize starting the conversation earlier on is around knowledge transition, how the system is going to be maintained post SI and then clarity over the acceptance aspect of the system. What does it entail? Who does it? In what form? Who writes test scripts or user acceptance uh, test scripts? All these things that are oftentimes very cloudy. So let's break that apart a bit. Uh, let's go back to the testing piece, the UAT piece. In a custom mm-hmm. dev or um, a, a more agile type of project, theoretically, you've been doing some user acceptance um, testing all along. Does that look different in the end, or is that um, uh, is it really more of a formality towards that that final sprint? Which I know, uh, in in sort of the methodology, most of us are comfortable with that final sprint is is kind of a uh, almost like just a, a refresher sprint. I mean, it's really that locking everything together. It is different because uh, within the sprints, you tend to build functionality, so you are doing um, focused functional testing. Maybe you just focus on a handful of the flows. Typical user acceptance test is about end-to-end flows. So it does include all the integrations and it's about what it takes for the customer to do their entire business as opposed to functionally focusing their testing effort on, let's say, I don't know, contract management aspect versus the whole flow of end-to-end testing, which is really the spirit of user acceptance where the customer really wants to validate that, yes, this new system will meet my entire business needs versus something focused. So I do see them to be a bit different, but you're absolutely right. Uh, In ideal world, acceptance is also happening along the way, but I've seen that to be very hard. Um, Most customers are not ready to say, yep, you're done, and I'm not going to revisit this again. They want to revisit it in totality of the system when it's all done, which kind of means a lot of work. How, Lori, how do you think about uh, getting a customer ready uh, towards the end? And I happen to know that the Haiku, we talked about the Haiku project <laughs> report a while back, or project, project status report, which I think is now going to live in infamy. Um, I happen to know that came towards the end of a project because uh, I'm, I'm aware of that project. But, you know, how do you emotionally get a customer ready and, and, and practically get a customer ready um, for, for accepting that you're, you're leaving them and leaving them on their own to do their own Haikus? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it does come down to relationship, right? We've said that over and over again, whatever topic that we're talking about. And so it's a difficult thing. Customers at different stages of the project become attached to the people that they're in the trenches with. So we see that, you know, in, in pre-sales, as we transition to delivery, initially they can be a little bit skeptical of this new team coming in. And then you go through the bonding process and you have your war stories and, and you've worked on haikus together. And so when you're thinking about the closing, it does become this, um, uh, potentially difficult scenario. Um, Customers, I think, can tend to sell themselves short, right? Because they have hired experts 
because they have seen some shortfall, whether it's in, in just time or knowledge. And so the thought of their being on their own can be a scary one. So, you know, to Miriam's point, you can never start soon enough in terms of helping them get to that, that place of comfort. And one of the biggest areas is the knowledge transfer. So it's not waiting and identifying it as, okay, this is, you know, um, all that you need to know, it's really involving them early on so that they're working side by side, seeing these learning opportunities along the way so that they've been right there with you. You haven't been off in a corner doing something and then coming back and saying, okay, it's done. They've been right there with you all the way. You know, it's interesting. And Andrea, it might be good to have you weigh on this. Weigh in on this. I know a lot of times customers uh, at the beginning of the project will ask for a lot of documentation. Uh, do you think that that's the most... Um, uh, effective form of knowledge transfer or is, you know, there are other things that are, that are more effective than actually a bunch of documents that we hand over in a Google, Google, I guess a Google folder. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I know that, I know that I've preached often that, you know, heavy documentation is not always the best way, but I think there is some value um, also to have documentation, you know, if, if the folks, us necessarily who had, who implement the system are gone and, and not available, you know, there needs to be something that they can go back to and figure out, you know, what was built, why it was built and all of that. But that said, those things have to be kind of living documents and maintained. But I think for the most part, you know, with this kind of iterative um, methodology that we've all worked through, one of the things we've often said is we're not going to be heavy in the documentation, you know, get their team involved so that they fully kind of understand it throughout. So um, to be honest, <clears throat> I only know it, you know, most of the time I've spent was more upfront, kind of from the preaching. So I actually would be more curious to those of you that actually got to this point in the project. So you're the preacher <laughs> with the choir. Is that the way this works? <laughs> <laughs> So all this stuff I've been telling the customer, does that actually work? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. What do y'all yeah, think? Does I, that I work? Think, uh, I, I, you know, I think um, if you do involve the customer and start talking to them about, hey, have you thought about how to maintain who in your team or how you plan to, intend, you know, to how you intend to maintain the system after we are gone, they start thinking about the types of documentation that they need. Uh, what I've seen happen is when you don't have these conversations early on, the SI is eager to get off the project. The operations team is waiting to staff the team members. So it becomes a kind of toe over the wall type of a scenario where you have a single session and you expect to discuss everything that's happened over the course of months, which is impossible for anyone to absorb. Um, so I think uh, what I've seen be successful is setting that uh, mindset for the customers to start thinking what, what's that day one of, you know, post SI, uh, it's going to be like, what kind of uh, things I should be expected to, uh, to do? What do I need to have? And that generally drives the kind of documentation that they would need because anything that they produce, I mean, we all know documentation is hard. It's always obsolete as soon as you put it down. So what's that right balance? But zero documentation, I've never seen that fly by any customer. So it's not zero documentation sum, but what that sum is, I think the customer is in the best position to help us uh, put something together that meets their needs. I, I'm curious, you know, we've talked, I think the last episode, maybe two, two ago, we talked about the different types of um, uh, kind of uh, uh, services models, right? So you've got time and materials, you've got fixed price. Uh, we talked a little bit about capacity. 
um, which is is a, a not Staphog. It's a much more strategic way of doing Staphog. Um, but how in a capacity model, how do you actually declare the end? Because mm-hmm. you've been contracted for capacity, you know, capacity, but not necessarily a specific set of deliverables. I mean, how do you know that that done is done? You're out yeah. of capacity, right? <laughs> yeah, you're out of capacity. You're out of money. I think yeah. it's really you're out of money, right? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's a delicate balance. Uh, I have a recent experience with this model, and I'm actually a proponent of it. As I've said it in the previous uh, conversation we had around it, I think the balance comes with transparency. You have to constantly let the customer know when the money is being spent in a way that was not expected. Uh, for example, some work stream is going to be bigger than it was anticipated and planned, which means something else has got to give. So the only way you're able to have those conversations around, so when are we done? It's by being very transparent in how the money is being flown in a different way and let them guide you. And uh, I actually, I think for those of you who know me, I'm pretty direct and sometimes really? it goes well. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it doesn't go as well. <laughs> because uh, I do talk about this very openly and consistently and for a very long time. So sometimes the customer gets tired of hearing it, but at least <laughs> I have that comfort and I've been very direct and open about it. Uh, but I think capacity models make it harder to define end, but uh, I think ultimately is the money. We're running out of money. How do you want us to work through the remaining budget to meet all these various objectives? And they'll help you. Like, okay, I really want this to be done, but this other thing, I think my team can finish. It becomes that conversation. And if you're able to reach that, it's not as black and white as one would hope, but is that falling back on those relationships and that trust that you've built to help them achieve the most that they can with the money that's remaining. So what you're really saying is that the end of the project starts at the beginning, that you start from the beginning talking yes. about how you're going to wind down. And that I yes. think that's probably true regardless of, of the type of project that you have. Um, what At the very, very end, what do you do to memorialize the end? Is there, um, do, are you guys proponents of, of acceptance documents or, I mean, what is it that you think, you know, it calls the end, the end? What I've seen, some clients, actually, we have auditing needs. From my experiences, the auditing needs that the SI has sometimes mandates the form of communication that's required. Uh, So I've seen a a very official email before the project closure asking the customer, can you confirm that if we have, in fact, met all the obligations uh, of the project? And, of course, that email is not the first time you ask that question. It is almost uh, after the fact, you've done all the discussion, you've done the knowledge transition, you've got the acceptances, you've already rolled off the project, and you've told the customer that, please be prepared for this additional email that will come through, which is part of our required auditing. And I've seen it work that way. So, But I do agree that it's got to be memorials in one form or the other, because otherwise it's, it leaves an opening for potential future conversations, emails, phone calls, which... It doesn't mean that it cannot ever happen again, even post that closure. Uh, but having formally closed, I think a lot of times is the best interest of the SI, yeah. uh, as well as kind of closing it with the customer that is officially we're done. So the other important part, I think, of memorializing a project is not just the communication vehicle with the customer, but it's 
making sure that you do housekeeping and that you build in time to do that at the end. So it's a very simple thing, but making sure there is a sole repository of what the final versions of whatever it was that you deliver to the customer is. So any of the documentation that you wind up settling on, just any of those artifacts for that customer so that you can uh, go back in time as you need. But the other important piece that I'm really passionate about is then taking the time to see what you've developed for that customer and cleansing it or thinking about how you're going to weave it into future projects so that you learn from it. I mean, I've had some recent um, experience where that gets painful when you have to um, just rely on tribal knowledge to say, hey, you know, where is this kind of deliverable for a similar project rather than having an asset that's already been cleansed that you can potentially repurpose for a different customer. That is very true. And I think part of that too is the rigor that you set throughout the project of how things are communicated, where they're stored, who has access to what. Um, And that is, you know, single threading is always a bad thing uh, when it comes to deliverables. I think we've all seen examples of that over time. The, the, the next thing I think, you know, once you get that uh, customer kind of closed out, um, hopefully you've had some sort of a celebration with the team and, and with the customer as well, which I'm a, I'm a big proponent of. Um, that su- should surprise no one. Um, when, <laughs> when you do finish that out, you know, Andrea, you, having spent a lot of time on the pre-sale side, I'd be curious, you know, there's a concept of post, post-mortem, and I think you do post-mortems for a couple of reasons. One, uh, to, uh, you know, let the team kind of, uh, uh, learn themselves what went through and, and, and talk, what, what went on as you went through the project and, and talk about that a bit. And sometimes it's, it's actually as much a, uh, you know, a, a psychiatric release <laughs> as it is anything. Um, but there's also that, actually memorializing for future use, uh, what you did. I mean, what are the things from a pre-sale standpoint, uh, as you, as you go back and look at doing, you know, uh, the projects that you might've done before and try to re- reposition them and repurpose them for future, what are the things that you would like to know, um, and make sure that get captured to help in, in the ongoing sales processes? Yeah, no, I think Lori just touched on this a little bit too, as far as sales and delivery, but I think this is huge. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've seen done really well in the past and not so well, but, you know, in the sales process, one of the biggest things customers always want to know is where have you done this before? So having, um, at the end of a project, a firm understanding of, you know, what was the business problem they were trying to solve? What was, how was it solved? Um, what was actually done? I mean, the actual scope, you know, we integrated to X system and did this and this and this because, in sales, you're always looking for, okay, give me examples where we've integrated to X system or we've implemented this or we've done something like this. So having kind of a clear understanding um, of kind of a documented understanding of what was was scoped there um, or, or what was delivered, I'm sorry, is, is huge. I think also um, just referenceable, you know, understanding is the client referenceable and having that relationship and, and can we, you know, tap into them later. Um, that's a huge part of the sales cycle. Um, and I think, you know, Lori made some points just a minute ago as well, as far as, you know, just plain deliverables or, you know, there are things we can, you know, reuse and repurpose and, and redo and kind of other pieces. Um, so I think all of those are huge. I think the other piece of a postmortem is the pure, you know, scoping is, you know, what did we originally scope? What was delivered? And how far apart were those two things? I mean, I think we've talked in the estimating about scope creep and things like this, but, you know, first off, did we actually just totally underestimate 
was the scope, you know, didn't change all that dramatically, but yet we totally underestimated. So how do we improve that, you know, the next time, or, you know, the scope did increase. So what we actually implemented, what we actually scoped initially and estimated was accurate. Just having that knowledge kind of goes into future cell cycles as well. So I think there's a, I think for one, postmortem is something that is not often done. I think people are, you know, the, the delivery teams, obviously they're tired, they're done. They just want to go away. They're on to the next thing, but there's so much value, um, in kind of taking all that information out of the project and documenting it and having it available for the next, you know, for the sales cycle, the next sales cycle and for future delivery as well. To that point, I think it's so helpful when in the sales cycle, there is thought about that project close piece of the project and where you build in time from the scoping perspective of just allowing the project team that time at the end. Now, in, in practice, you know, Miriam touched on the fact that operations is already like staffing them. That <laughs> 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 was not my dog. Is that Bluebell? Uh, yeah, let me go close the door. I think somebody probably walked in. I, so, I was afraid of that. I, that. I don't know if you saw me getting all distracted, but hold on, I'll be right back. Lori's 16 dogs are quiet, but Miriam's one. I know. I was, I was sure that was Lori's pack of, pack of dogs. <laughs> Bluebell's podcast debut. Yeah, we're, we're leaving that in, Miriam. Sorry about that. Are you okay? Well, good. Sorry about that. He's pretty well behaved up until now. <laughs> All right, Lori, you were I saying. I have no idea where we were. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about um, oh, scoping, leaving hours in for. Yeah. Oh, yes, building into the project plan. Um, just time to be able to do that. Um, uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> well, I, I actually want to drill in the scoping a piece uh, a bit because um, <clears throat> it is hard. How do you even take three projects that might have been somewhat similar? And learn, you know, compare them in a way that is it, it, you're able to determine what you need to determine about how to affect future scopes. I mean, what, what do you even look at? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought this to be more challenging. I think everybody's got this vision that you can break it down that, you know, if you integrate Salesforce to um, an ERP system, it should take, you know, X amount of hours and we should have this library of things and all that. And I think you can to an extent. Um, have those type of things, but it, I think it just varies so much from client to client. Um, you know, there's so many factors that come into play that are going to, going to change that around. And I don't want to get back into estimating, but that's where you can kind of add these kind of other values and things like that. But I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a couple of things. I mean, if you're, if you're delivering a project and actually, and actually you're delivering at the task level where people are actually doing tasks and, and putting in hours. So you have something actually to comparable that, you know, when I integrated the account object into um, Oracle ERP, you know, and it, you can start to see, Oh, it took 40 hours here and 45 hours here and 48 hours here. And you kind of start to get those averages, but that gets really challenging also on the delivery side, kind of tracking that. So I think there's, it's, I think it's, it, you still need somebody who can really kind of think it through and look at it and, you know, break it down. I think it's always hard to get it into an actual, you know, library of items, but you can at least look at what you've done in the past and start to get, you know, some of those values that you can build out from. And I think to the, that that's where having a very well uh, statusing process helps because a lot of times you can look at the risks and the risks that needed to be mitigated. If you take those three projects, let's say they were all similar, you know, integrating a CRM with, with an ERP of some sort. And if you can look at the risks that were outlined as you go through the projects, compare those, 
Um, that then, as we talked about in the statement of work development, that becomes your assumptions, right? I mean, first of all, scope, ask the customers if those things exist. And if they do, then you try to, try to assume those out or try to, you know, put some bumper rails around those. Um, but you're right. It's not, it is, uh, definitely not a, I'm just going to check a list and, and these are always going to be the same every time. Um, I think there, there has to be dialogue and, and, and some management to that. Yeah, I think there's, and there's just so much cultural at different, you know, if you're in a client where they're very meeting centric and, you know, every decision is made by 15 people in a room in a meeting, you have to understand that versus the type of client where has a real decision maker is going to say, yeah, you know, you ask them a question, yep, on we go kind of a thing. And so those are things, I mean, and those are things from a scoping perspective, you generally have to kind of figure out and then you factor in and like either by adding a percentage or an uplift for the meeting centric client or something like that. But when you take a project that's, you know, two projects or three projects are exactly the same. So even though the scope was the same, they could be delivered in dramatically a different amount of hours just based on the culture. So that's where I think from a scoping perspective, it can get really hard to, you know, have this library of, oh, it's always this, this, and this, right? Well, and I think it's so good to have that balance between sort of the data-driven reflection about what it really took to deliver a project, but also the storytelling that goes around it. And that's why I think, you know, the postmortem can satisfy that um, need for us, you know, in the project team to really kind of process it together as a group and to understand it and to be better consultants going into the next project. I think it can also help build your culture so that that the people on your team see that you're focused on more than the numbers and value the experience that you gained and want to listen to why, even though on the surface, it may have seemed to have, you know, it should have been a certain way, but why it really turned out the way that it did. Yeah, there's a couple of things I would say around postmortems. Uh, in addition to everything that's been said, uh, number one, uh, Internal postmortems are great, but sometimes you want to include the customer, especially if it's an ongoing relationship. Uh, there's a lot of learning that goes on. It's not unusual to have a project lined up with a customer, that reflection with the customer on what to anticipate or how to plan the next engagement better. It would be very valuable. Second thing I would say is that, and I know we've got an upcoming um, session discussing governance, but you don't want to keep even internally the postmortem completely closed. Uh, because uh, in a consulting world, a lot of consultants land up going to different projects. You want that learning to go well beyond that project team. And generally, when you have folks uh, that are involved from a governance level or PMO level, however you want to organize, how your organization is organized, but taking that learning so that it can apply across future projects, other projects that are ongoing, other deals that are being written, I think it would be very useful. Yeah. And I think you're right. And we will, it's a really good segue into the next segment. Um, and we will talk more about governance later, but it, it is a discipline uh, to put postmortems uh, within your, um, your management process. The last question I'd have is if you're, if you're in an organization that's doing hundreds of, of projects do you do postmortems on all of them? Um, do you maybe look at at doing focus postmortems on a, a portfolio of them? I mean, do, do you what do you think about just the uh, the number of postmortems? Yeah, so postmortems for sure. I would consider postmortems a necessary step for all projects, but the level of involvement that it would it should get organizationally can differ based on the complexity or things that went on that project that requires a bigger learning. Um, sometimes I've been part of postmortems that 
take 10, 15 minutes for a team to come to get together, talk about the project and cheer their successes and move on. Uh, but a lot of times you want the postmortems to be a form of learning. And uh, you oftentimes learn from projects when they don't, they don't go well. So if you've done things for the first time, if you run into challenges that you know uh, really require you to do things differently from a sales perspective, execution perspective, those are the ones that you really want to have focused time on, perhaps spend longer period of time together. Uh, but at, but at, I would advocate postmortems are necessary for all project sizes. It's just how much you want to invest in it can change based on uh, the level of learning that you expect to get from that postmortem. But in all cases, documenting some of it, I would think, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I think from the sales perspective, um, you know, having some level of documentation, as I mentioned earlier, on what was done is very valuable, I think, on any project, because you're always looking for, you know, a client of X size and X industry who did X with an integration to X. And so, you know, if you can produce, oh, we've done 17 of those, that's always even better than having one. So it doesn't have to be a long diatribe of documenting all these things on the smaller projects, but you know, having those points and then, you know, maybe having a much larger kind of review on the, on the uh, larger projects, um, constantly in sales, you're looking for these kinds of things. So having that documented has huge value. And uh, to that point, one of the things that I've seen done successfully is documenting those learnings while the project is going on and not waiting till the end. Uh, so that way you've got a library of sorts. And uh, uh, again, don't want to kind of steal the thunder for what's coming, but as an organization, you know the area so that you can start creating buckets, like estimation as an example. If a project is grossly off or, I mean, generally that's the scenario. It's not the other way around where you have too much budget and the work gets done earlier. But the point is that you can identify that as a category uh, of uh, a learning. So that way, when it's discovered at the point in any project, someone can, you know, quickly capture it as a learning for a speci specific type of a project and categorize it as well. So you have reportability and you have access to that information because sometimes you forget. I've been on projects that are year long. I don't really know what happened six months ago, let alone being able to kind of bring that all back to the table a year later. Yeah, very good. No, I, I think you're right. And it's a, a it's a perfect um, uh, segue into uh, the, the segment that we'll do on, on governance next time around. So for our lightning round on this one, uh, my question is one recommendation. We, we actually haven't talked um, to each other in a little bit. So uh, any recommendation, book, movie, podcast, anything you've got uh, uh, out there for a recommendation. Lori, I'll start with you. You got a grin on your face. Ah, so, well, I was sort of deciding between two. So, um, and you never go with just one. So I'm going to let you do. And I never go with just one. <laughs> you never follow the, the rules. rules. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. You too. They would have given you one. Okay. Well, now you've changed the one that I'm going to talk about because um, we always do the movie, podcast, um, book. Mine is actually going to be a product recommendation. Oh, <laughs> wow, I you mean, need a picture for that. That. <laughs> Podcast requires to have that. In, I guess in the show notes you can add that picture. Go ahead and grab that? a screen. Oh my god, it's Vanna White. <laughs> what the? What is that? I'm actually holding. This is it's actually deodorant. Deodorant. It's deodorant. <laughs> Put that back up again. <laughs> so this is Insta Natural deodorant, aluminum free, and. <laughs> That's I was actually trying to impress Andrea, but 
<laughs> Given the size of her eyes, I think I have failed miserably. No, no, no. I, I've actually bought aluminum-free deodorant, but none of them have worked. So I'm That's actually why, excited to hear this. This is why I'm so excited because this actually works and it works for males and females. <laughs> This is is taking the lighting around to a whole new level. (laughs) (laughs) Insta natural. Go ahead, follow that up. I'll, I'll even keep my second one. I don't know. You said you had two, so I don't know if we want to know the second one. <laughs> All right, Andrea. Well, I, a lot of female audiences, but exactly. anyway. Andrea, I double dog dare you to top that. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm actually really going to look bad here because I realized that the podcast I've been listening to that I was all excited to recommend is the one that Miriam recommended on the last <laughs> call we had. Beautiful Which anonymous. one was that? Beautiful uh, anonymous. But my second oh. endorsement would work too. I've been in my car a lot lately, and so I've been listening to a lot of those, and they are awesome. They're really, really good. Um, but yeah, I was thinking somebody else recommended it to me, but no, it was Miriam. So I can't talk deodorant, and I don't even have a unique view today. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. Oh, Miriam, how about you? Oh, my God. I'm going to sound boring, but I think I'm going to top the two of them. I don't know if, how many of you saw my Facebook post. Man, I asked for... Uh, TV recommendation, a show recommendation, and I've got enough on my list now to last me a lifetime. But I just finished uh, watching a Netflix uh, series called The Killing. Yeah. It's four seasons long. Wow, it was captivating. I can tell you that I'm glad that it's over because watching four or five episodes a day was taking a lot of time from my sleeping. Did you, on Netflix, is it the the original, uh, I think it was Swedish in subtitles, or is this the one that was remade? I can't, I guess it, I didn't even know that there was a Swedish series, but this one was all English. So it was remade, but it was, I mean, two seasons of just once one murder. Wow. I'm telling you, I was just like, I couldn't just wait to watch it. So I, I highly recommend it. It did get dark in the fourth, uh, you know, fourth, se- fourth season. So I was just kind of getting ready. Cause I was, I didn't really want to watch it. It was bringing me down quite a bit. Uh, but I gotta tell you, it's, uh, it, it was a good one. All right. That's, that's actually, I, I, I am familiar with the Swedish series. I didn't actually see it, but I know it was very popular a couple of years oh. ago and I'd heard they remade it um, in English. So it's good. So for mine, I, I am now going to have to go think about deodorants um, later. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, on that note, I think we can do a whole natural products one. We, like, well, I've I been on the guys drive that sunscreen trying yeah, to get, I, I think I'm going to sit back on that one too. <laughs> <laughs> No, trying to get all these chemicals out of our lives and all of this. So yeah, we can do that on the, um, the, uh, what's the, uh, health or the fitness. We'll let you drive that one in your health and fitness one. So my recommendation this week is an app It's uh, called texture. And, you know, I've, uh, I, 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 as I said before, I've loved reading magazines. Um, but the problem is you end up throwing them away. You may tear the sheets out and save things. You forget why you saved it, but it's really cool. You, I think it's nine ninety nine a month. Um, typical Ronco knife thing there, but, uh, it's, it's basically about 10 bucks a month and it gives you access to like a hundred magazines, everything from, uh, from time to a, a bunch of decorating and, and food magazines, uh, travel magazines, 
um, the Atlantic, all kinds of things. And the cool thing about it is that uh, you immediately get the the magazine when it you know is is published, but you can save articles so that you can you know save them off. Um, it, it'll be there down the road. You can then cross search it. I can go search the entire library of magazines. Like I'm I'm in New York next weekend. I was looking for some restaurants. I mean, it's it's really it's like Nirvana for magazines. So that's that's my recommendation for the, for the for the week. Nice. I wrote it down. I should get it for my dad because he still collects magazines and cuts <laughs> articles yeah. and then leaves it on my desk to read. <laughs> if I give him this, then he can email it to me. No, I, and I think you can actually share as well. So that could be yeah. could be a good 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 for you. Great. Thanks for joining our podcast today. If you're looking for more information about some of the topics that we covered, check out our website at www.realtechreallife.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.